On the night of November 11, 1633, a ship named Fortune, 34 passengers aboard, was making her way up the Baltic Sea from Lübeck to Riga, when a storm forced the crew to take in all sails. In the bowels of the convulsing ship, one of the passengers was keeping a journal. Those among us who were not used to the sea were so sick that some vomited blood, he wrote. That passenger was Adam Alarius, a 31-year-old, university-educated master of philosophy, who was now on a six-year, 7,000-mile journey to Moscow and Persia. After less than 48 hours aboard ship, it looked like the Baltic Sea might never let them leave. Welcome to the first episode of The Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a trade expedition that failed so completely that its leader was publicly executed upon his return. But the diaries of those travels also launched the career of one of the world's first scientific travel writers, our protagonist, Adam Alarius, who is as obscure in the 21st century as he was famous in the 17th. Such were his accomplishments that his contemporaries called him the Ulysses of Gottorp, after Homer's legendary Odysseus, or the Holstein Pliny, after the first century Roman author of the 37-volume Natural History, an encyclopedia that remained an authority on scientific matters for over a thousand years. When he wasn't busy chronicling everything from what the ambassadors ate to the scientific reasons for vomiting, Olarius also charted the course of Russia's Volga River, corrected the map of the Caspian Sea that had been wrong since Ptolemy's first-century geography, produced the most accurate map of Iran to date, and recorded the customs, dress, religion, politics, and superstitions of all the peoples the travelers encountered along the way. First published in 1647, the full title of the book is, and I quote, The Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, sent by Frederick, Duke of Holstein, to the great Duke of Muscovy and the King of Persia, begun in the year 1633 and finished in 1639, containing a complete history of Muscovy, Tartary, Persia, and other adjacent countries, with several public transactions reaching near the present times in seven books. Throughout this podcast, I'll be using the second edition English translation by John Davies, published in London in 1669. Illustrations are from the 1663 edition, published in Schleswig by Johann Holwein, which you can view at David Rumsey's excellent historical map collection. For the Russian segment of the journey, I'll be relying on the modern English translation by Samuel Barron, published in 1967. Barron notes that the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors was issued at least 27 times, from 1647 to 1727. Eleven German editions, nine French translations, three in Dutch, three in English, and one in Italian. The first Russian edition, comprising only the first three volumes, was published in St. Petersburg in 1861, and several complete translations were published between 1868 and 1906. In 1947, the U.S. Library of Congress acquired a second edition, published in German in 1656, and noted that a Dutch translation once owned by the library had been recorded, but could not be found. The international success of the book had a lot to do with the fact that more people than ever were able to read. Thanks to Johannes Gutenberg, a goldsmith in Mainz, Germany, who invented the movable-type printing press, European printers operating about 1,700 presses had produced more than 8 million individual books by the year 1500. 
the world's first weekly newspaper titled The Account of All Distinguished and Commemorable News was published in Strasbourg, Germany in 1609, and the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War in 1618 coincided with an avalanche of newspapers founded all across Europe. It's impossible to know the true literacy rate of the times, but estimates based on the proportion of signatures to marks in marriage registers, wills, contracts, tax assessments, and other documents indicate that 20% of peasants and 65% of craftsmen were literate at the beginning of the 17th century. By 1850, adult literacy was 25% in Italy and Spain, 70% in England, and 90% in Sweden. By the time Olarius and his friends were vomiting in the hold of their little ship, Amsterdam was an international center for newspapers printed in Dutch, German, French, and English, and people, much like today, were voraciously consuming vast amounts of political news and vicious satire. Valerius doesn't say if he was vomiting blood like his shipmates, but he did use the opportunity to discuss the causes of seasickness. Some are of the opinion that the stench of the salt water corrupting in the sink is that which provokes such vomiting, he wrote. Others, on the contrary, affirm that it is caused by the violent agitation of the ship, which makes the head turn and the stomach to cast up what is in it. But certain it is that both contribute thereto, inasmuch as if the agitation trouble the brain, the stench also offends it, provoking vomiting, even without any violent motion, wherever they are, not only at sea, but also anywhere else. In the age of sail, the problem of vomiting passengers was so common that 14th century French poet Eustace Deschamps told travelers to sleep with their mouths open to avoid the stink. As the fortune swept eastward through her storm, the Thirty Years' War was but fifteen years old, and peace was nowhere in sight. But our ambassadors were about to leave all that in their wake, if the weather would cooperate. Sailors have withstood the Baltic Sea's temperamental nature for centuries, and the crew of the fortune did the same. The ship was utterly becalmed the next morning. Hilarius wrote that the relieved ambassadors brought their musical instruments on deck and sang a fourth-century Christian prayer to give God thanks for our deliverance. Hilarius didn't attribute storms to the work of the devil or malevolent sorcerers, but sailors are a superstitious lot. Today's tradition of breaking a bottle of champagne on the bow of a newly launched ship stems from antiquity, when a libation to the gods poured into the sea would secure a safe voyage. Many sailors once believed that storms would subside if a naked woman appeared before them, so ships were adorned by wooden figureheads of naked women. And Friday is still a bad day to begin a voyage because Jesus was crucified on Friday. Baltic sailors in the late 1500s were known to zealously prohibit swearing aboard ship, punishing offenders who put the crew at risk. The commander of the fortune did exactly that, issuing fines which totaled 22 Reichstallers by the end of the short voyage. The Reichstaller was a standard silver coin of the Holy Roman Empire, at the time, worth 26 grams of silver. And when the ship reached its destination on November 14, Olarius and the ambassadors disembarked in Riga 
and Commander Hans Muller had a small fortune to give to the poor of Riga and Lübeck. Riga was two leagues upriver from the mouth of the Vina, one league being 4.6 English miles, and heavy fog obliged the fortune to call for a pilot, which they did by blowing a trumpet. It is still common for modern ocean-going vessels to be piloted into port by local expert navigators, and it was even more important in the Baltic ports of the 17th century. Accurate maps had only been available for 100 years in 1633. The oldest printed sea chart of the Baltic dates to 1526. Published in Amsterdam by Jan van Horn, the remaining fragments of the Karte van de Oosterse Sea, or Chart of the Eastern Sea, do not include the Baltic, but the title indicates that the original most likely did. A surviving copy of the 1558 Karte van Oostland, Chart of the Eastern Lands, by Cornelis Antinus, contains 76 pages in a format that allowed coastal outlines to be displayed more clearly. The first maritime atlas, Spiegel der Ziefert, or Mariner's Mirror, was published in 1584 by Dutch pilot Lucas Janszoon Wagner. The book combined an introduction to navigation, tide tables, an atlas of nautical charts, and sailing directions for each map. River mouths and harbors were not drawn to scale, a clear indication that the maps were intended to help sailors safely make their way in and out of coastal waterways. Wagner's book was the first of its kind in the history of nautical cartography, and it was so popular that the name, anglicized to Wagner, came to be an English word for sea charts of all kinds. Indeed, today, the Wagner Cruising Guide is a popular book that offers maps, charts, and tide guides, boat maintenance tips, and other resources for sailors. But despite the popularity of these books, some local sailors refused to use them, priding themselves on carrying the art of navigation in their heads. Even a book published in 1644 by Swedish naval admiral Johan Monsen said that he who would be a true steersman should not spare the lead and line. This ancient method of determining both the water's depth and the composition of the seafloor is called sounding. At the end of the 1600s, Dutch fishermen were still relying solely on the lead and line, and probate inventories from the time indicate that many sailors owned neither charts nor pilot manuals. As late as the year 1800, Swedish-Finnish poet Franz Michael Franzen said Finnish sailors steered their vessels through the shallows, armed only with local knowledge and experience. Just like today, by the 1600s, channels had long been marked with buoys, lights, or tall poles sunk into the shallow seabed. Norwegians built tall rock cairns in strategic locations, the Dutch built fire platforms on the dunes to aid the fishing fleet. But lighthouses were costly and built only at vital points on the main trading routes, and vast stretches of coastline all over Europe remained utterly dark well into the 1800s. Under such conditions, sailors used landmarks such as trees or rocks or church spires or towers to avoid being shipwrecked. To safely navigate into the Baltic port of Rival, today the Estonian city of Tallinn, which is 200 miles east of Riga, Admiral Monson advised mariners to take their bearings by the ruined Burgatine Monastery to the east of the city. Olarius mentions no problems except the heavy fog, 
And so the pilot safely delivered our ambassadors to the city late that evening. Olarius describes Riga as very pleasant, very populous, and very considerable because of its commerce with England, Holland, and the Hanseatic towns in summer, when the Baltic is navigable, and with Russia in the winter, when the frost and snow can bear sledges. The traffic of it is so great that it hath almost as many shops as houses, he wrote. All provisions are very cheap, because there is such an abundance of all that an ox may be bought for three crowns, a hog for one, and fowl and venison proportionably, all the country peasants thereabouts having the liberty to hunt, though they have not any other. In the mid-1600s, trade was brisk up and down the Baltic. In 1642, more than 2,000 ships called at Danzig, a major port city in what is now Gdansk, Poland, some 300 miles west of Riga. On any one day, but especially during the August Fair, which opened on St. Dominic's Day, four or five hundred ships would have been moored on the banks of the Motlau River. The Motlau Ferry that crosses the river in Danzig was established in the year 1687. From Danzig, half the ships sailed routes between Baltic cities like Copenhagen, Lübeck, Stockholm, Riga, or Viborg, while the rest would have made for Portugal, Spain, France, England, or Amsterdam. One of the most common runs was Danzig to Amsterdam to Setubal, a city on the Atlantic coast of Portugal, just south of Lisbon, where rye was traded for salt. With a fair wind, the 850 sea miles to Amsterdam could be covered in a week. The round trip to Portugal took a couple of months or more. The early 1600s marked the high point in the history of Baltic trade. Traditional commodities traded by merchants were grain, ashes, flax, hemp, iron, and timber moving west, and salt, fish, woolen textiles, and wine moving east. But the Baltic also provided a wide range of other essentials to Western Europe. Silk, tallow, wax, leather, skins, furs, and pine resin products like turpentine, pitch, and tar, used in building and maintaining wooden sailing ships. From 1619 to 1621, silk, textiles, and cotton accounted for 16% of commodities imported by the Dutch East India Company. At the French port city of Marseille, the volume of raw imported silk doubled between 1613 and 1642. In the 1660s, silk, thread, fruit, dyes, and oil accounted for 32% of foreign trade at the docks in London, England. On the other side of the trade equation, Persia's Shah Abbas I wanted to enrich his empire by bringing in European science and technology in exchange for silk. For the Europeans, the land route to Persia was one quarter the distance of the ocean-going route around the Cape of Good Hope. But getting there meant crossing the border into Russia, traveling some 2,500 miles down the Volga River, and then sailing to the southern end of the Caspian Sea. The English, French, Dutch, and others had been denied passage by Russia's Tsar Mikhail I, and in 1617, Sweden gained control of coastal lands in the Gulf of Finland, thus preventing Russian access to the Baltic Sea. The Tsar worried that Europe's larger powers would abuse their trade privileges and attempt to take Russian territory, decided to grant the right of passage to Holstein, 
the small and inoffensive state led by Duke Frederick, that was less likely to damage the Tsar's interests in the Baltic. So silk was the reason our ambassadors were in Riga. I will introduce them all in episode two, but for now, let me just note that Duke Frederick's designs on the silk trade were prompted by Otto Brueggemann, a lumber merchant from Hamburg who had suggested the plan, leading the Duke to believe it would bring in great riches, get him out of debt, and ensure that his newly founded city of Friedrichstadt would gain prominence on the map of Europe. And what a map it was. In 1633, the Thirty Years' War was only halfway over. Germany, France, Spain, Sweden, Denmark, Austria, Hungary, Poland, Scotland, and even Transylvania were playing a kind of military musical chairs with the cities of Germany, while bubonic plague, famine, and general civil unrest added to a death toll of some five to eight million people. Before the historic Peace of Westphalia was negotiated in 1648, approximately 20% of Germany's overall population was dead, while up to 50% died in the 600-mile-long corridor between the northern coastal plain of the Baltic Sea and the Black Forest in the southwest. At the same time, Protestant cities were banning Catholics, Catholic cities were banning Protestants, and cities were switching from one side to the other as one army or the other arrived and laid siege. The war had been launched in 1618, when Emperor Ferdinand II of the Holy Roman Empire tried to force Catholicism on the Protestant states of northern Germany, and Protestants reacted by throwing three of Ferdinand's representatives out of a top-floor castle window in what became known as the Defenestration of Prague. Catholics and Protestants couldn't even agree on how the men survived. Catholics insisted that the Virgin Mary, or angels sent by her, caught them in mid-flight. Protestants said their lives were spared by a heap of animal dung, 70 feet below the window. In either case, it wasn't the defenestration that caused the war. What caused the war is what precipitated the defenestration— as noted by a Bohemian count in that Prague castle on that spring day, Ferdinand, his empire, and his representatives were enemies of us and our religion. And so out the window they went. The war was one of the most destructive in human history, but it wasn't entirely religious. Catholic Spain was allied with Ferdinand partly for geographical reasons, while Catholic France, nearly surrounded by other enemy Catholics, forged a military alliance with Protestant Sweden. The Swedes and the Danes were Protestant like their German allies, but the opportunity to take German Protestant territory along the coast of the Baltic Sea was just too good to pass up. These days, getting a visa to travel in a foreign country can be accomplished from your living room. Our ambassadors had to visit the Tsar in person, hence their arrival in Riga, where they waited for the land route north to fully freeze over. Davies says the magistrate of Riga sent presents to the ambassadors upon their arrival. An ox, some sheep, some poultry, hares, partridges, and other fowl, wheat and rye bread, and half a ton of Rhenish wine. Barron's translation uses the word am instead of ton, and notes that an am is an old wine measure equal to 130 to 160 liters. 
But the Davies translation uses the word ton, an English unit of liquid volume that was typically, but not always, equal to 252 U.S. gallons. Half a ton would therefore be somewhere in the neighborhood of 126 gallons, whereas 130 liters is a mere 34 gallons. Regardless of how much wine the ambassadors drank, the Rhenish wine was from Rheinhessen, which today is the largest of 13 German wine regions and is located along the Rhine River near the city of Mainz, where Gutenberg had his print shop. The party resumed its journey on December 14 on 35 sleds, pulled through the snow by horses. As most of us were unaccustomed to riding in sleighs, which we were now obliged to do, Hilarius writes, the first day several people were thrown from the sleighs, after which they would pick themselves and their things out of the snow. Four days later, only fifty miles from the bustling city of Riga, they passed through the small town of Volmar, so ruined by war between Russia and Poland that its people were living in wooden shacks built on the foundations of destroyed buildings. On December 21, they reached Halmet, which Davies identifies as a castle, while Baron uses the phrase country estate. Apparently, workers from Germany had been enticed to immigrate, when the locals told them the land was so rich and there was such an abundance of food that the elk ran into people's houses. But Hilarius tells us that the Germans were so unaccustomed to the heavy work involved in tilling the fields that they fared badly, became impoverished, and eventually required the aid of their good-hearted countrymen to get back home. Passing through Derbt, known today as the Estonian city of Tartu, Olarius tells us that Swedish King Gustavus Adolphus, killed at the Battle of Lützen in November 1632, established a university in the town before he died. Unfortunately, it was not much known for the reputation of its professors or the number of its scholars— and only ten Swedes and about as many Finlanders were ever persuaded there was anything to be learnt in those quarters. Today, the University of Tartu houses the Johanskita Institute of Political Studies, whose namesake was the tutor for the crown prince of Sweden, who later became King Gustavus Adolphus. Traveling through other demolished towns, the ambassadors reached the city of Narva on January 3, 1634, where the Tsar's representatives said they would have to remain for six months while Moscow prepared for their arrival. Today, Narva is on Estonia's eastern border with Russia and is known for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's Narva scenario, a military conundrum in which NATO could have to protect the member state of Estonia if Russia invades Estonia like it did Ukraine in 2014 and again in 2022. Throughout this section of the book, Olarius details the fates of various towns during wartime. Derbt, for instance, was founded by Russia in the year 1030, taken by the Teutonic Order in 1230, taken back by Russia in 1558, and largely destroyed in 1571. In the year 1571, Olarius tells us, Reinald Rose, a gentleman of the country, attempted to put the city into the hands of Magnus, Duke of Holstein. But this design being discovered, he was cut to pieces by the Muscovites, who thereupon exercised all manner of cruelties upon the inhabitants of the city, 
without any distinction of age or sex. Subjugated by Poland in 1582, taken by the Swedes in 1625, and annexed by Russia's Peter the Great in 1704, the town also suffered with the rest of Eastern Europe during World War II, and today almost 2,000 German soldiers are buried in unmarked graves in one of the city's cemeteries. As we retrace the 7,000-mile journey of the ambassadors through places that are still some of the most dangerous on Earth, we'll discover that our modern world, with its wars, politics, trade relations, plagues, and newspapers, is not all that different from the one experienced by our intrepid author, who, 389 years ago, described the Russians as marvelously well-versed in the quality of cheating and lying. Next time, we'll introduce our ambassadors, find out about the ancient Russian communications network first created by the Mongols, and discover exactly what kind of hellish liquor the Russians provide for the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. Mm-hmm.